Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Emily Van Canet. Uh, today, we're wel- welcoming Beto Arcos to read from his new book, Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. Uh, he'll be in conversation with Mandelit Del Barco. Before I introduce them, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books offers curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. Beto Arcos is a reporter and music critic with work published by NPR, BBC, and KPCC. His new book, Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio, is a compilation of 30 years of work and over 150 stories of music and radio journalism. NPR's Mandelita Barco is based in Los Angeles and has been with NPR for more than 30 years. She covers art, film, and culture. Welcome, Beto and Mandelita. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thank you. Yes, and now we'll open up with a reading here from Beto, and I'll, I'll leave the conversation to you, too. I was six years old when I listened to a radio program called La Legión Infantil de Madrugadores, the Children's Legion of Early Risers. My mother turned on the radio every morning to get her kids in the mood for school. The program was a world unto itself. Two hosts. How could I forget their names? Griselda Hernández Portilla and Martín Casillas. They taught us about nutrition, health, civics, and everything kids need to learn during the grade school years. But to a kid like me, the best part was the music of Francisco Gabilondo Soler, better known as Cricri, El Grillo Cantor, the singing cricket. I loved listening to his songs because each one of them told the story I identified with. Gato de Barrio, El Comal y la Olla, El Ropavejero, La Patita, Cricri's songs were complex masterpieces filled with subtle social commentary, and each song featured a different style of music. All those songs, the lyrics and the music, are deeply embedded in my consciousness, along with the songs I heard in the evening when my father tuned the dial to his favorite radio stations, XEW in Mexico City and XEQ in Monterrey. Every weeknight, he listened to Trios Famosos, an hour-long program of boleros featuring some of the major trios that popularized the genre from the 1940s on. Los Panchos, Los Tres Reyes, Los Montejo, Los Fantasmas, Los Tres Caballeros, Los Dandies, and so on. But he was especially fond of a program called La Hora de Agustín Lara, and occasionally he'd grab a guitar and sing songs in the carpentry shop, a space filled with a strong smell of cedar mahogany, 
walnut and pine, where I also worked with my older brothers, Luis and Quinto. In my early teens, my older sister, Esther, who worked as a nanny for an upper middle class in Mexico family in Mexico City, would visit during the Christmas holidays and she'd bring home vinyl records of the latest pop stars, Roberto Carlos, Juan Gabriel, Rocio Durcal, The Carpenters, The Jackson Five. In the shop during the afternoon, we tuned the dial to a handful of local stations offering a diverse variety of music. The Beatles, Santana, La Revolución de Emiliano Zapata, Los Corraleros de Mahahual from Colombia, Los Socios del Ritmo, Los Ángeles Negros, Sandro, Leonardo Fabio, and my brother Quinto's all-time favorite, Rigo Tobar. That was my life in Jalapa, Veracruz, until 1977. At age 15, I was invited to live with the Donald family in Palo Alto, California. I attended the eighth grade and learned to read and write in English. A completely different world suddenly opened up to my ears. The following year, when I returned to Jalapa, I had a new sense of who I was and what I could do. I joined, uh, I joined the church choir led by my brother Quinto, and I learned to play the guitar and sing in two languages. As I approached college, I began to collect the albums of Silvio Rodriguez and Pablo Milanes from Cuba, Inti Limani and Quilapayun from Chile, and Juan Manuel Serrat from Spain. Then, in 1985, I decided to return to the U.S. to work, and I landed in Boulder, Colorado. When I crossed the Matamoros-Brownsville border without papers, I had Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run, playing on my Walkman. <laughs> I love it, Beto. I love hearing your backstory. And that, you know, you can tell that you're such a great storyteller, even of your own story. And I think that's, that's what comes across in, um, in your book, Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. First of all, thank you for, uh, for coming here and talking with me. Um, you know, I just, I think this is just such a marvelous collection, um, and it's so rich with stories, like, like your own story, you know, um, all these artists that are, are not well known in the mainstream, but they're, some of them are very well known to us who, who appreciate world music, not just Latin American music, but from music from all around the world. So I, I, you know, I haven't seen another book quite like this told from a, uh, journalist, uh, public and community journalists at that uh, point of view. And I just wanted to uh, let everybody know, full disclosure, we've been friends since the 1990s. And I am just so, so glad you've been collecting these stories all these years. And as a listener, I want to thank you so much. Gracias, Beto. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you know, I should also say, I always looked up to you. You're, you've Aww. been one of my mentors for a long time. And, uh, you know, you may not remember this, but... You were in a workshop that I attended, and you were teaching us how to cut, how to edit tape, reel to reel, quarter With a inch, razor blade, right? Back yes. in the old days. <laughs> That's right. Well, I'm super proud of you with all the work that you've done, and um, and you know you you're not like a you're you're no longer a mentee for sure. I'm sure you've been mentoring and inspiring a lot of people along the way, and. And you and I have a, a, a wonderful music editor in common, too, Tom Cole, who's, uh, who just retired from NPR. And in the foreword to your book, he says that you taught him a lot about these musicians. Like, like you're teaching us as we read your, your, your book, too. You're teaching us about these musicians. And he, um, 
He says you have big ears, which is a compliment. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a dig. It's a compliment to have big ears to hear everything. Um, and I know over the years you worked not only at NPR, but Latino USA, Radio Bilingue, the world, the BBC, KPCC, and, and your own radio show and podcast, The Cosmic Barrio. And I thought maybe first you might tell us a little bit about this, this concept uh, the, and the term, the cosmic barrio. What is the cosmic barrio to you? The cosmic barrio is, is Los Angeles. And it's also a place that I've been able to find everywhere I travel, whether it's in Fez, Morocco, or in Madrid, Spain, or in Oslo, Norway, or in Rio de Janeiro, or any other place on the planet where I've been you know, interviewing musicians, I think that that is the sense that I have from the idea of the concept. What um, I, I should also say that the name was created by a friend, a mutual friend of ours, Ruben Martinez, yeah. about 20 years ago or so, when I was working at KPFK as a music director, I had to, I needed to create a weekend program, and I, I couldn't come up with a name. I had just created a program called The Global Village, which is still on the air, um, but I had to create a weekend program on Sunday, and I, I needed a new name, and I wanted something special. So I reached out to Ruben, and I said, hey, man, I need a name for a program. And a couple of days later, he says, I have a name for you, the Cosmic Barrio. And I said, <laughs> perfect. I said, because, you know, my idea is that I want a program and I want a book and I want a podcast that represents different cultures from different parts of the world. And that's sort of the idea that the Cosmic Barrio can be anywhere. Ideally, in, in the first place, it, it was in Los Angeles. But as I traveled over the last couple of decades around the world, I've discovered there are cosmic barrios everywhere. That's, <laughs> That's right. the idea. And cosmic, you know, it could even be out somewhere out in space that we don't even know. <laughs> Maybe you'll That's travel right. there someday. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, uh, and you have collected these great music stories from around the world, um, more than 150 stories. That's amazing. Um, mo mostly in Latin America, but all over the world, like you said. And... Um, uh, I wanted to find out from you, when do you decided to collect these stories into a book? I mean, radio and audio storytelling is so ephemeral. And to have it down in a, in a book format, you know, um, it's, it's, it's great to, to be able to go back to it. You know, every time I pick up this book, I just open a page and there's another great world that you're telling us about, a story, a person that you're telling us about. What, how did you decide to make this into a book? Well, initially was this idea that, you know, I'm not going to be around forever. I, I want I want to leave something behind uh, as a sort of legacy of that I was here on Earth. So it was sort of that kind of idea that I just felt like it's great that the stories are out there in the cloud, if you will. You know, people can listen to them, you know, whatever they are from in the, on their phones or whatever, but they kind of already went away. They're, they're sort of, you know, they aired and they're gone, so to speak. And then I thought, well, you know, I, I've done stories for so many different, you know, about so many different artists for four or five different outlets. I mean, KPCC, I've been doing stories for the last four years for them. NPR, exactly about 10, a little more than 10 years for NPR. Uh, I did about 
uh, seven years of stories for the world. Uh, I stopped doing um, stories for them about a couple of years ago. And then recently, in the last three or four years, I've been collaborating with for the BBC. I've, I've been doing stories uh, for a program called Music Planet. So I felt that I had accumulated a body of, of work that I could put together into something physical that, uh, that anyone could, just like you said, go into it and open the page and look at, for example, the Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles and the story of that, for example. Yeah. How in Los Angeles this amazing orchestra inspired by El Sistema from Venezuela came to be in, in L.A. So right. I, of course, spent time with them and all that. So that's sort of the, the idea behind it. You know, then, of course, came, well, okay, how do I organize all these stories? <laughs> so yeah. that, was a, the, that was the challenge. That's a whole other thing. I, but, but, you know, before we talk to that, I, I do want to go back and, and listen to one of the stories uh, that you tell in this book. And you ha it was first a radio story before it was in this book. M let's, let, let's take a listen to your amazing story. The Salón Los Ángeles is the oldest dance hall in Mexico City. The classic 1930s ballroom is located in a working-class neighborhood near downtown, and every week it sees dozens of well-dressed couples of all ages moving to an orchestra of saxophones, trumpets, trombones, clarinets, and percussion instruments. The music is called Danzón, and it was born in Cuba in the late 1800s. By early in the next century, it had couples gliding in set patterns in a kind of formal square dance. It was huge, but like popular music in every era, Danzón was eventually replaced by more modern styles. In Mexico, however, danzón is still a popular ballroom dance in cities across the country. Composer Arturo Márquez caught the danzón bug when he started going to a Mexico City dance hall in the early 1990s. And that's where I really learned the way they play, the way the danzón sounds, the rhythms, the melodies, the harmonies, and especially the connection between the dance and the music, which is very strong, that dance, the music really goes together, you know, all the time. It's like a marriage. This kind of music and dance atmosphere inspired Marquez to compose not one, but a series of eight danzones for orchestra. It allowed me to go into the symphonic world, you know, into the classical world. I won't say easily, but uh, with a very natural sense. Arturo Marquez was born in the northern state of Sonora, the family eventually moved to Los Angeles, where Marquez took up violin and later piano in high school. He received a Fulbright scholarship to study composition with Morton Subotnick and James Newton at the California Institute of the Arts. Beto, that's so great. You know, as I'm listening to your beautiful story of, like, dancing along, you know, listening to the music, and that's one thing that in the, on the radio we're hearing the sound of the music, and we're hearing the voices of these of these musicians, which is so rich in, in just meaning and, 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 and tone. 
And I think you really captured that also on paper in your book. You know, you, you captured their stories and, and you were able to describe them uh, really nicely in, in written form as well. That's a hard thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, originally you think, how will this, you know, how will this translate, uh, this storytelling? Because as you know, one thing is to write for radio and another thing is to write for a you know, book or a magazine or a paper. Uh, so it's, it was, that was the challenge. And of course, you know, thanks to uh, the help of a really brilliant uh, style editor who, you know, looked over every word <laughs> <laughs> of the hundred thousand words that is in in the book, um, it you know it it looked like wow okay this this is possible this this is good, <laughs> so I'm really really happy how they turned out. Yeah, well, I mean that is a tough thing to do to you know you we write for for audio storytellers like us we write for the ear right but now you're also writing for somebody to read it um, so. I'm wondering, do you, do you have any plans to, to make this an audio book or to include your audio stories somehow or links to them or something? You know, that's that's something that's been brought up and people have asked me about that. And I, it's, it's another big project that I'd have to, you know, <laughs> take, you know, it'll, it, I, I mean, obviously I would have to, you know, try to see if I can get permission from the different outlets that, uh, you know, yeah, that have but it would the, be great these, you know, the rest of the stories. It's so, it's so fun to hear them too, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, uh, and you know, with this with this story and with the others, um, you go into so many different styles and genres of music. Um, not only danzón, but samba and trova and faro and vallenato. I mean, uh, for for people who don't know about that, you're really educating them, you know. And for those of us who do know about it. You're giving us a deeper look into those those worlds as well. One of the uh, challenges, I think, and, and, and you know it uh, as well as anybody, I think one of the challenges that we have as, as Latinos, as, as journalists from, you know, a Latin American background is to be able to not just, and I would, I would actually say a responsibility too, to be able to not just translate our culture our our you know stories um, behind our culture and all that but but to actually make them accessible to a bigger audience and so that's always been a challenge from the moment i started doing stories back in the early 1990s uh, right after um, or actually right before i graduated from the university of colorado in 1993 <clears throat> i felt like um it was it was something that i had to sort of you know kind of own and I have I had to just say okay I'm, I'm gonna do this and and I think this is the way that, that I have you know I've kind of been part of many different you know uh, in the in our community people that have been able to to do that that, that have in a sense uh, this responsibility this kind of weight this kind of agency if you will the, to to you know to be interpreters to be translators to be carriers of messages about who we are, because, you know, people think that Latin music is this thing, just, you know, like genre from, from the, I don't know, the Academy, uh, you know, of, of, of recording arts and sciences, you know, Mexican regional, alternative Latin, you know, uh, I mean, way, we're way more complicated than that. We have so many styles. I mean, in each country, I mean, just one example, Colombia has 
about a hundred music genres in just Colombia. Colombia is the size of Texas, roughly. There are a hundred music genres in Colombia that translate into about a thousand rhythms. You know, just like in Mexico, there are um, 65 indigenous language, languages still spoken, which translate into about 270 variations, or, or as you know, they call them dialects, you know, different languages. Right. It's, that's how diverse this you know, world is. <laughs> so I Amazing. felt like music is similar, you know, music, just like in, in food, you know, you have different ingredients and depending on how you mix them, that's the flavors you're going to get. <laughs> and some of those, and some of those, uh, um, styles are, are, are disappearing too. So you really are able to chronicle them as they're here or as they've been revived in some cases, right? Yeah. That's right. I mean, there are, in fact, you know, people can can't see this, but behind me there are, there are seven musical instruments, and one of them that's right straight behind me, called the bajo quinto, which there's a story about this instrument in the book, um, was on the verge of of disappearing until this musician uh, sort of went back to the small town and learned to make the, the instrument and learn how to play it, and now the instrument thankfully is back. It's being played again in that community. So yeah, I, I, I like I said, there is this kind of responsibility that I feel like I have to, to make sure that these stories are told. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you about how you got those stories, but I, wanna, I want us to listen to another one, too. Um, and this one, and I have to say, I really appreciate that you uh, put a lot of emphasis on women musicians, because that's, uh, you know, women are sometimes overlooked in the musical world, uh, you know, uh, well, in a lot of ways in the musical world. But uh, th this is one story that I, I really appreciated that you that you included in, in this. Um, this is by Silvia Perez Cruz. It seems like Silvia Perez Cruz can do it all. On her latest, she sings an iconic Catalonian folk song called El Cant del Socels, made famous by cellist Pablo Casals. She also sings a lead from the mid-1800s by Robert Schumann. And she tackles the Edith Piaf classic Im à l'amour. The common thread running through all these songs can be found in the stories their lyrics tell. That's why I've always said that style is not what matters to me, but the result. The song has to have a story that I believe in and I can make it my own. 
I think I have that influence from my mother. My mother is a good storyteller, and she's always believed the songs are stories. Her own professional story began at the Catalonia College of Music in Barcelona in 2004, when she co-founded a flamenco group called Las Migas, the Breadcrumbs, with three other women. Perez Cruz says none of the four musicians were the best players or singers, but that helped them take a different approach to flamenco. I think that's the best thing we did. It was a sound that really did not exist in Spain, based on our limitations, which was to make a more accessible type of flamenco. She went on to record an album of duets with a percussionist, and before long, Perez Cruz became the buzz of the Spanish music scene. Javier Colina, an acclaimed jazz bassist, invited her to record an album with his trio. Colina sent her a CD of classic Cuban songs with a note telling her to listen to the lyrics. Of course he liked the melody and, and the harmony, but he selected them because of the text and the stories they told. He said to me, don't study the songs, listen to them at home. Let them keep you company until they stay with you. They did. Beautiful. I love hearing her voice, her music, and, and what she says about uh, storytelling. Um, it's, uh, it's absolutely true. And, you know, and your book is all about stories. And, um, I mean, you tell a little bit about your, your own story, but you include in there, um, you know, the story of Las Posadas that we celebrate at your house every year, uh, the Christmas uh, celebration, and, 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 and other stories like that. I'm just, you know, it's like, how did you get to do all this? This is like a dream job, you know? Like, how did you, how do you be able to travel around the world um, doing things that, you know, it's like, it is. It's a dream job. Going to jazz festivals in Cuba and festivals all around Latin America, all around the world. Um, how did you? How did you get to do that? Did you fund yourself? Did you? How, how is this possible? How can we all do it? <laughs> well, in most cases, yes. I mean, in, in some cases, I was invited uh, to you know to attend and to give talks, to give workshops about. Um, music journalism or about podcasting or about the music industry. They want to know, you know, how things are run in this country because a lot of places in Latin America um, are, you know, want to know how things are done. And so I've attended, I've been lucky to, to been invited to several uh, festivals because of my work, because of what I do. And so um, in when I can, of course, I take advantage of the visit and I carry, as you know, my backpack full of equipment, <laughs> including a camera. By the way, the book yes. has 150 plus photographs. Every story has one or two photos. So I carry my camera and I take photos, I, you know, of, of artists and musicians of whatever. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's sort of 
part of it. And, you know, and, and yes, I, I, I have to admit, in some cases, I, I've paid my way. I've traveled on my own, paid my way to go to events or festivals and, and get to know. Because I feel there's one thing about music that I've, I've been saying for years is that it's great to find things on YouTube and, and listen to Spotify and all of those things. But that's another thing to actually meet with musicians, to to. to talk to them and to see them play in their space yeah. it's that's a very different thing about music and many of the stories that I write that I that are in the book or most of them are because I interviewed those musicians in their space in their studio in their home yeah. in behind stage at a festival uh, so I see them in their environment as opposed to you know just downloading the music and listening to it and that kind of thing. In, in the majority of cases, I prefer to interview them. Of course, in the past year, we haven't been able to do that. But but I always rather interview them at their home, in their space, because I feel like there is something to be said about that environment. It, it just, you know, it, it has it has that vibe that that space that color that texture that I'm looking for that I'm interested in yeah I mean you get that warmth and you get that intimacy and obviously you know you're very easy to talk to so people you know it, it, it that's the other thing is is when you interview somebody you have to get them to be comfortable with you and to feel like you're a friend and that's what it feels like you're 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 like you're my friend and and if you read the book you become the friend of the reader just going to these people's homes and their and you know in their spaces like you said yeah 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 it's um but you're also what i'm just curious what you look for in in the music like how do you choose who you want to talk to is it just your own passions and curiosity do you hear about them from other people how did how do you just you know it's almost like you're discovering all these or rediscovering or or letting us in on the secret you know of, of who these musicians are all, all around the world really that's a great question um and it's actually all of those things that you just mentioned and more in in most cases the stories that I do that I'm interested in is because I'm interested in them because I just feel like I'm I want to do a story about this artist. I'll give you an example. Um, Arturo Marquez. Um, I've been a fan of his work. We just heard his you know his music in, in the beginning a little bit. The story about Danzón and how it came to Cuba. Um, and I should mention it was not an easy sell. It was not an easy pitch to my editor to Tom Cole uh, in the beginning. He he just wasn't. I, it didn't grab him. The story just didn't grab him. I think it was the third pitch that I finally he says, okay, sounds good. Do the story. And I, it th- has some to do with, you know, the fact that this is kind of a complicated story to tell. I mean, you know, Danzón starts in Cuba, then it goes to Mexico, and then it goes from a popular dance form to a classical you know, style, and then mm-hmm. next thing you know, Gustavo Dudamel is performing Danzones by Arturo Marquez at the LA Phil, you know, for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Right. So that's why I think in some cases it's complicated to tell a story, but I really felt like I, I could, you know, in six minutes I could tell the story of, <laughs> of this composer. Why not? So that's one case. I just was a big fan of Arturo Marquez because I love his music, you know. Now, in the case of Silvia Perez Cruz, I mean, I can't tell you, the first time I heard one of her songs, it just touched me. I mean, this is an artist that 
you know, when someone asked me, well, who could we listen to right now in this period that we're living? I said, you know, Silvia Perez Cruz. She, yeah. she really has this thing about her voice that it just kind of fills you. It helps you kind of cope with sadness, with nostalgia, with melancholy. It just has this kind of quality to it. Nobody told me about her. I found the music myself, you know. But then there's cases, uh, you know, like uh, Leo Brower, for example, a composer from, from Cuba. Of course I knew about him. And I knew the importance of a composer such as Leo Brower because he was the one that helped to usher in uh, conservatories in Cuba that gave us some amazing musicians that combined the classical with the popular music, pianists, uh, you know, cellists, bassists, etc. I mean, Cuba is just an amazing country. But to reach Leo Brower, it's sort of like reaching the Pope. I mean, you know, he, he's not one to give interviews, first of all. And when I was finally lucky enough to get an interview with him, uh, by the way, Tom said to me, you know, if you're in Cuba, you should try to get an interview with Leo Brower. You know, he's not going to be around forever. He's probably in his late 70s, which he was when I interviewed him uh, about three years ago. Um, and sure enough, I got a call one morning. I was in Havana. And Beto um, just got word. Uh, his manager says you can go to his place tomorrow at 10 a.m. He'll be waiting for you for the interview. He'll give you 30, 40 minutes, whatever you need. Okay, great. Showed up. And the first thing the manager says, no politics. You cannot <laughs> ask him about politics. But I sit down with Lil Brower at his home and talk to him about this. And, in, you know, like I said, in the comfort of his home where he could just speak freely. But then suddenly, halfway through the interview, he starts talking about politics on his own. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean about you getting them comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is how a lot of the stories happen. You know, I just, you know, sometimes in the case of Lil Brower, Tom Cole recommended it. I, of course tried several times to do the you know to do an interview and, and then it happened um, but most most of the stories I just feel like I want to tell the story I want to you know there's story of Cuban musicians in Los Angeles for example is really fascinating mm -hmm. in the last decade there's been a lot of uh, Cubans that have come to LA to find work because there are I don't know if you know this but there are more than 50 salsa bands in the LA area did you oh, know that's cool yeah I, I don't know any other city that has that many and many of them are populated by musicians that play with three or four different bands mm -hmm. so you you'll find a percussionist that plays with three or four bands <coughs> on a weekend Friday Saturday Sunday they'll play with three different bands every night right? more, more than uh, more than in uh, New York or Miami you know, I don't know. If, I don't know about the numbers in Miami mm -hmm. or New York, but I'm. The whole reason I brought up the the number is because you know people think that LA is you know ah there's no salsa, there's no Cuban music. Oh. I'm sorry, but you know what? Oh, we, there is. We can give New York its run for money for this money. <laughs> I mean, it, it it's really an amazing place to find great Cuban music, even timba, which is, mm. you know, uh, until the last ten years, timba was not really played in LA until a group of musicians started playing it. So I did a story about this band that plays timba music mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> and it's here in the book. <laughs> 
So you, you know, like in the back uh, on the back cover of your book, um, you you uh, Jackson Brown is calling you a Sherpa. So I mean, you're, you're traveling all over the world, and I, I wanted to play a, a last uh, song. Uh, I mean, a, a last story by you um, that you did by Ibrahim Malouf, and I think that kind of illustrates how global your your curiosities and your reach is. Ibrahim Malouf plays a four-valve trumpet. Most just have three. The extra valve, the thing attached to the button a trumpeter pushes down, allows him to play quarter tones, the notes between the notes that characterize Arabic maqams. The maqams are scales and modes with quarter tones and three-quarter tones intervals, something that you cannot find in Occidental music. For example, I can play Arabic style, but without quarter tones, so it sounds like this. And then if I use the quarter tones. Malouf credits his father, a renowned Lebanese classical trumpeter, with coming up with the innovation. This trumpet that he invented is pure genius. He invented the only Arabic instrument you blow that allows you to play all modes, all scales, in all the tonalities. He, he invented a new way to play the trumpets. Malouf says there are many links between Arabic and Western music. He says when he's playing jazz, he can incorporate Arabic scales thanks to one specific similarity. There is this note that we call the blue note, and I, I believe it's a heritage from African music. And if, if you use this note, it's exactly a quarter tone. For example, if I'm playing scales in jazz... Yeah, great. And again, it's like great to hear the audio of this, right? That's a actually that's that's what's good about this podcast because you can actually hear hear the music that you have in your book as well, you know? <laughs> so that's what yeah. added added value or added bonus to this uh, to this particular yeah. podcast. But you know, you have this this story in a section of the book that you call immigration and you have a lot of different themes in your book. Um identity, community building, music and adversity, social unrest and violence. You have um, poets reacting to violence in Mexico, for example, um, music in Cuba, the diaspora, Brazilian music, instruments, producers. I mean, how did you organize these? How did you get these themes going? Because you have so many different stories. The idea behind that is that I felt like, you know, over the last, 25, 30 years, I've been telling stories about music from different perspectives, from different sort of places, from different ideas. And I feel like I had to help the reader kind of organize these in, a, in sort of narratives. So, um, so I started to 
look for threads in all the 150 stories and things that kind of had something in common. So if you if you go into the section about uh, community building, um, you'll find stories about, um, for example, Yo-Yo Ma in Mexico City, the cellist, the famed cellist, um, has been touring the world and the last visit was in Mexico City. This was uh, about you know, two years ago. And uh, it turns out that uh, he was all about community building. It was all about, you know, bringing together different uh, elements of a community, uh, artists, people that work uh, in, in a restaurant, uh, you know, just regular folks in a community center and to talk about how through their work can enrich their community. So I felt like, okay, there's a, there's a story about community building. And the same goes with, you know, with the story of, um, you know, of, of the world stage. The world stage in Los Angeles is this sort of cultural hub of the African-American community. It's also a community. It's also a place that creates community. They get together two or three times a week to play jazz. You know, they come together in this place called the World Stage in Lemur Park, and they get together building communities. So people from across this, the LA area come to Lemur Park, you know, to learn how to play jazz and creating their own community. So the idea is essentially that, that I wanted to kind of help folks see music from different perspectives. It's not just about creating the music, it's not just about, you know, playing the music, it's about the story behind music making. And that's what your book has done. And that's what um, I, as a listener and a reader, hope you'll continue to do for, for many more years. Thank you so much, Beto, for this book. My and thank you for your work <laughs> all these years. Super proud of you. Thank you so much. Well, coming from you, my mentor, my, <laughs> my guiding light, oh. I am really honored and I want to thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. Really, really appreciate uh, your work, Mandalit, as well. Thanks, Beto. Love you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for sharing your work with us today, Beto and Mandalit. And thank you so much for you know, letting me and all of us buy in on just like a beautiful friendship surrounded by music. It's so cool and great to see. Um, so yeah, once again, today's guests, Beto Arcos and Mandalit Del Barco, and they were discussing Beto's new book, Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio, which you can order at online on our store at skylightbooks.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Gracias. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.